Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. I'm joined today by Professor Antonio Almeida, Director of the Clinical Hematology Service of Hospital da Luz, Lisbon, Portugal. I hope my pronunciation was appropriate. And the President of the European Hematology Association, the EHA. Antonio has had an extensive career to date, first completing his medical training here in the UK before going on to head a hematology department in Lisbon. His research has spanned several sub-disciplines, previously focusing on epigenetics and hematologic diseases, and he's no stranger to EMJ, having discussed some of his work in a, an interview published now three years ago. Antonio took on the position of president of EHA just recently, succeeding Elizabeth McIntyre at the annual Congress in June. In his short time as president, Antonio has already begun to make waves in the association, overseeing an update of their vision and mission statements, as well as the EHA values, such an important part of any organization's infrastructure. Antonio tells me that he's a fanatic of anything to do with the sea, sailing, surfing, scuba diving. And he told me that his time in the UK, that was a little bit problematic. So they tell me, I know that my first experiences of sailing off the south coast of England, uh, it was described as standing under a cold shower, tearing up 20 pound bills. So at least if you sail in warmer climes, it's a warm shower. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Antonio Almeida. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So, Antonio, the last time you spoke with EMJ, you mentioned your plans to implement uh, a new medical school. That's a heck of a challenge. Can you give us an update on that project? Indeed. I mean, that was a very exciting and, and still is a very exciting and very challenging uh, project. We, I, I'm, I'm the dean of this medical school and with the Catholic University, we set off to implement a brand new medical school. It opened in 2021. Um, and we're now running into our third year, and we have uh, we've started the clinical teaching this year. Um, it's very exciting because we're implementing a new way of teaching. We're using very much competence-based learning and problem-based learning rather than traditional learning. And it's great to see how excited the students are and how excited the staff are with this. And a lot of our students have now been able to go away to other institutions, both in Portugal and abroad, to do electives. And the feedback has been really fantastic. So obviously I'm biased and I think my students are fantastic, but when we have someone else who's totally unrelated to the medical school saying the same thing, uh, it shows us we're in the right direction. And, and I think, I must say, my path within the EHA has really helped me uh, and put me in good stead in this project because I've done a lot of work in implementing educational projects within EHA, all the way from the curriculum to the exam, going through new teaching activities such as the masterclass and peer-based learning. And that's really helped me set up this new project. And it's been a real privilege to do it and to continue doing it for the next few years. So uh, a couple of things. First of all, what's the masterclass? And secondly, I went to visit my alma mater, Liverpool, and when I was there back in the day, uh, we did a great deal of anatomy. Can't remember exactly how many times a week, but I think for the first 18 months, it was pretty much every day we were doing anatomy. And I went back and now anatomy is a six, weeks, uh, six week course 
you know, based on computers. No one does dissection unless they're going on to do surgery. Uh, and I asked the question, what was the data to demonstrate that this was a better way to learn? And I'm sure there are data. So first of all, masterclass. Secondly, what were the data points you used to redesign a curriculum for med school? Okay, well, starting with the masterclass, that was a very nice project that is still ongoing within EHA. The whole idea of the masterclass is to use peer-based learning, so peer-to-peer learning. And it is a year-long project in which young hematologists organized into small groups have to solve cases. And so they have more or less one case per month spanning the different areas of hematology. So they'll span malignant hematology, benign hematology, laboratory diagnosis, coagulation, transfusion. And through interaction with each other, they will be solving these cases and then they will have a mentor that will guide them through this process. And this is very much the educational philosophy behind my medical school and behind modern medical education, which is that we recognize people learn as we do in adult life as professionals. We don't learn just by reading books. We learn because we need to apply what the problems are in our lives to our learning. And that's how learning really happens and is effective and is retained and becomes a part of day-to-day life. And that's how the masterclass tries to do that with the added value that students are able to share experiences. So the groups are not constituted by solely Portuguese or solely British or French students, but we mix different nationalities so that they have an insight into what the realities are in the different countries, what the access to diagnosis, to treatments, what the, what the guidelines are in the different countries, and they can have a real perception of how there is a huge variety, even though we may be treating and dealing with the same disease in the different places. Um, and, and that's really been a very enriching experience to all mentors and students alike. And it's really a great joy when you go back to Congress and see how they come together and how they form this professional bond with each other and how sharing experiences and learning from each other really stimulates them. And that brings me nicely into anatomy, because the whole philosophy, again, I say of modern medical education, is that it has to be applied. And so isolating anatomy as isolating physiology and biochemistry, and then trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together at the end, is not as productive as teaching anatomy within an applied setting so that it's relevant, that it has a context. And so when we teach, um, for example, one one of our subjects is circulation in lungs. And within circulation in lungs, the students will learn everything from what the anatomy of circulation in lungs is to how it works, so the physiology and all mechanics, to how it can go wrong. And in, in that sort of spiral of education, Anatomy is there, but it is no longer that difficult chore, but it becomes something that is part of the whole system that they are studying. And in that way, I actually see them far more enthusiastic about anatomy than I was. And I I had a very similar experience to yours in that we had a body split between three people and and it was just something we had to learn off by heart. The other, I think, very important thing is that uh, whereas a lot of digital education is very useful and very relevant and can actually give access to 
a huge amount of information that we cannot always have with analogical education. There, there's also little substitution for actually touching and feeling and, and, and becoming aware of that. And so we do give that possibility to students. We not only have models, but we have body parts and cadavers that they can study from and that they can learn from. And that, that's also highly valued. So, you know, I think we, it's something that we need to cater for all tastes, but above all, we need to make it applied and make sure that it is relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. Well, I'm glad to know. I'm not surprised, but I'm glad to know that there is a there is a basis for it. Yeah, you know, I know that I struggled with anatomy when I was just learning it by rote. But then when one started to comprehend the way, for instance, an acute appendicitis, why the pain was felt in the umbilicus and not in the right iliac fossa. Um, and it was like the epiphany. Um, so anyway, moving on. Uh, congratulations on becoming uh, the president of the EHA. Um, you took over, I believe, at the last Congress. Uh, what's been the highlights for you since taking on that responsibility, leadership of a very major and important medical society in a fast-moving specialty? Well, I think EHA is particularly exciting as an organization within Europe and the world. Hematology, as you say, is a very fast-moving specialty, but it has many challenges which really I hope EHA can help minimize. I think one of the biggest challenge that we have is the diversity, which can be very rich, but also can lead to a lot of differences and inequities between, one, between countries and even between regions in the same country. Um, I mean, suffice it to say that the whole teaching program of hematology in for example, Germany is very much focused on hematological malignancies and includes solid tumors, whereas in places like the UK, it also includes benign hematology, clotting, and transfusion. Um, and, and so this huge variety is something that needs to be dealt with, not just for the academic sake of it, but because what we want to provide is to ensure that our hematologists have a community where they have mobility where they can choose to work in different countries and are recognized in different countries. And so that our hematology patients can also have that mobility and be treated in Portugal with the same quality as they are treated in the UK or France or Germany or Bulgaria. And that is a very tall order, I realize, but it's also a very important mission. And so what I've come to realize in, in these past few months since I've become president of VHA is that it is critical and very important to involve all parties in, in, in this mission, which means that we need to speak to the national societies, to the national authorities, to involve them in this shared vision that hematology must achieve its high quality everywhere. Firstly, in Europe, we are a European association, but also helping as much as possible uh, throughout the world. And, and, and this possibility of actually giving hematology more relevance through our big pillars, which are education, through supportive research and careers, uh, and through advocacy, and having a sit at the table where big decisions are made uh, for the future is really very exciting and very challenging. Very, very cool. So staying with uh, EHA, your mission statement emphasizes the importance of promoting, you know, the, the, the three pillars, education, research, and 
and advocacy, that triumvirate is critical in hematology, as in many specialties. How do you plan to act on these points in the coming year? Well, one big unmet need is, is actually trying to include more and more countries and trying to give more and more possibilities to everybody involved in hematology. Um, if you look, if I start with research and you look at where most research grants go to, they end up inevitably by going to the same institutions in the same countries. And, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because obviously these institutions are very productive. They have high achieving researchers that produce great results. And these are results that we need. But it also means that we do we are not capturing the the imagination, the, the creativity, above all the expertise that happens in other areas, other regions that are not uh, that are not covered by these grants. And so one of our great aims is to have grants that include these regions, that promote research in these regions. Um, and so we'll have ring fence grants directed at countries that are not normally funded by big European and uh, EHA grants for hematology. Uh, also within this aim of harmonizing and of giving greater opportunities to everybody is our educational program. Um, we have a very strong, very complete educational program online. And by being online, it makes it more accessible to everybody. But we also want to give more and more possibility to have local meetings, to have joint meetings between EHA and the national uh, societies, and also to be able to increase the recognition of our exam and our education so that hematologists that do adhere to our educational program and are assessed with our exam are recognized as having a quality education and have also increased mobility through that. And, and thirdly, one very important point also within the mobility is that we need to have hematology recognized at a central level. Obviously, this happens in the European Union, but also will then extravasate the European Union to other countries in Europe and hopefully even beyond. And the recognition of what a hematologist is in terms of years of training, in terms of, of content of training, is very important at a central level. And this will help harmonize and the mobility of all hematologists. The other very important advocacy activity that we have is also to do with bridging inequalities, which is how we access medication. Um, there are many new regulations coming in about with the European Medicines Agency and with the European Union. And as I say, this all extravasates beyond the European Union of how medication is accessed, priced, assessed. And I think it is critical that a society such as ours that represents so many different societies in so many different countries, it is critical that we have a seat at that table and that we are able to discuss and to voice the concerns of our members so that we actually are able to have more access and better access throughout Europe and not just restricted to certain countries with other countries struggling to have access. So we hope that in that way we do improve the health of our patients, we do improve the care for our patients, and we do improve 
the general quality of life of hematology patients by improving access to hematology. You know, in your specialty, there has been, in my, in my professional lifetime, there have been phenomenal advances for patients with malignant and non-malignant uh, hematologic diseases. Um, and I would imagine, you know, I've never gone to an EHA uh, Congress, I'm a surgeon, but when I've been learning more about it in preparation for this and other podcasts, um, it strikes me there must be really exciting congresses with the speed of innovation. So the, the Congress in June 2024 is in Madrid. So I love I love that part of Spain. Actually, I love all of Spain. Can you give us a sneak peek at what topics are going to be prominent there? And also, given that Congress has changed because of COVID, I guess we were sort of dragged kicking and screaming into the modern world. Um, as we had to adapt to virtual congresses, and now we're doing things in a mixed manner, um, hybrid conferences. So, yeah, can you talk, use this as an opportunity to to sell the congress to the listeners so that they say, you know what, I think I'm going to go. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think EHA Congress is certainly our flagship. I think that this is our most visible activity. We have about... 15,000 participants between online and, and presentially. But what is fascinating, Jonathan, is that we were dragged into this virtual world in a, with, with no great choice. And it's fascinating how quickly people have gone back to wanting to be face-to-face. I think that says a lot about our human nature. Yes, yes, we will adapt and we will do what we have to do. But what is natural to us is to speak face to face. And that inevitably shapes the way things have happened. Our Congress last year was a huge event. And I think that's probably the biggest highlight is we had great science presented. We had great clinical advances. But above all, we could see that there was huge participation from the hematology community and wanting to be there and listening. Now, in Madrid, we will also have great science. There will be a lot of uh, presentations about advances in specific topics uh, without wanting to give too much away, but we'll be very much focusing on topics such such as myeloproliferative neoplasms, and there will be a lot of advances in the usual suspects such as multiple myeloma. But this year's Congress chair uh, is uh, Brian Huntley from the University of Cambridge. And, and Brian is a clinician scientist and he does a lot of research work. So he has inevitably set his tone on presenting a lot of basic science. And so we will be hearing a lot about how mutations and the, the advances in mutational uh, analysis have changed the face of diseases, of hematological diseases, of how we look at them, how we classify them, how we treat them. Uh, and, and I think that's probably one of the most exciting things about hematology is how quickly basic science and basic research is translated into clinical practice. Um, it, and, and I think the huge advances in technology both genetic and protein technology have really enabled us to make this road so quickly and and to have these advances. So um, for everybody who wants to come to Madrid, first of all, please pay 
it's not going to be 50 degrees in the shade, um, but hopefully we'll, we'll have milder weather. But secondly, come and interact with all hematologists and come and listen to all the great advances in treatment and in basic science that will be presented there. Well, fantastic. So you mentioned myeloproliferation. You know, you've got your clinical work at the hospital. You've got um, uh, your work, obviously, uh, uh, at EHA. But and I know that your research has focused on pathophysiology, novel treatment targets for myeloproliferative and myelodysplastic syndromes, focusing on epigenetic regulation of transcription regulation. So tell us about your research and what are you up to now in that part of your life? Well, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a great co-researcher who works with me at the university. Um, and and we, we're looking into quite an exciting prospect, which is the circadian rhythm and how different times of the day affect biology in different ways and how this can be used to our advantage. Uh, the, the most obvious application of this is to see if giving drugs at a different time of the day will affect their efficacy. Um, and, and we're obviously starting with an observational study, but then taking this a little bit further to see how we can translate this from in vitro to in vivo. And also to try and understand how the different uh, homeostasis and gene regulation that happens during the day could possibly affect how the disease progresses and how this can go forward. The other exciting research project is uh, is that I'm participating in a European consortium that is trying to create synthetic data, so digital data based on real patient data, so that we can create patient avatars, so virtual patients, that we can then use to simulate different results. And so actually to be able to run clinical trials and observational trials in a virtual world to try and derive results that could then be applied into the real patient world. I know this sounds very much, uh, very futuristic, but it's out there and artificial intelligence is, is helping us. And it, it, we're working mainly in AML and sickle cell disease to try and see if we can collect enough clinical data that then the artificial intelligence algorithms will produce these patients' avatars that we can then use for research. And, and, and I, I'm particularly excited about this project, although I must say most of the time it's totally, I'm totally out of my depth. But, it, it, but the possibility of transforming one set of patient data into thousands of patients that can then be returned data is very, very promising. So you're also national principal investigator for several clinical trials in chronic myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndromes. Can you give us a, an update, a status report on those? A friend of mine, um, Antonio, has CML, and I told him you and I would be chatting, and he's keen to know what is on or even over the horizon. Well, I mean, I, I think both CML has this knack of reinventing itself. As soon as we think we've cracked it and, uh, and we're moving forward, it totally reinvents itself. It presents itself with new challenges. And, and that's why I think it's a very exciting disease. Um, so I started working with CML when I did my registrar training at the Hammersmith. This was in, in the 90s. And in, at that time, we were doing bone marrow transplants for these patients as a curative option. And when 
TKI inhibitors came in, we started using those and, and transplant really sort of fell by the wayside and is now only for a very small handful of patients that really don't respond to everything. Uh, at the moment, I don't have any ongoing trials in CML, but I think there are two main directions in which research is going there uh, and which will be presented uh, at EHA, hopefully. Certainly will be presented now in, in, the, in the American Society of Hematology Congress and then at EHA. One is drug dosing and how we can optimize doses of drugs so that patients have fewer side effects with maximum efficacy. A lot of it has been done already with drugs like clonatinib and dazatinib, but hopefully more and more we will be able to obtain responses and then lower the doses so that patients don't suffer so much from the side effects. Uh, the other one is how we can really eliminate as much as possible that leukemic stem cell and give more and more patients the possibility of treatment interruption in the long term. Um, so we participated in the Eurosky trial, which was the biggest treatment interruption trial ever held with over 800 patients included. And we corroborated a lot of the data that had been coming out from the French group and other groups that, yes, there are a proportion of patients in which we can stop TKIs. And by stopping TKIs, they will remain in deep remission. Now, with the new inhibitors, such as a Siminib coming in, and the possibility of combining inhibitors, can we actually improve the number of patients that reach this threshold of having a deep response and that once stopped treatment will maintain that response? And I think that is particularly exciting because the more, I mean, it was unthinkable some years ago that we would be able to cure a deadly leukemia like CML just with a pill without bone marrow transplant. And, and to have witnessed that throughout these years has been amazing. Um, MDS is also very exciting, I think, nowadays, because we have more and more possibilities of treating these patients. New drugs are coming along, uh, and these new drugs are improving the anemia, reducing transfusion requirements, and delaying the progression in patients with MDS. There's still a lot that we can do, but I think that as we unravel the molecular pathophysiology of the diseases, we will be able to get more and more targeted therapies. And with these targeted therapies, we will be able to treat more patients more effectively. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to let my pal know to, to check in and, and listen to this. Uh, he does not work in medicine. So, um, Antonio, I remember hearing that within five years of graduating from medical school, half of what we've learned is proven to be in, inaccurate. Of course, the trick is knowing which half. What, what are the largest changes you've observed in hematology over the course of your career? And incidentally, I forgot to mention it uh, earlier. Um, I did my registrar and SR jobs, senior registrar jobs at the Hammersmith, um, although we didn't quite cross over. Um, so very fond memories. And I know there were some amazing things happening in hematology when I was there. So yeah, which... Which 50% has changed uh, since you left med school? Um, um, and what's the speed of change? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to kick off with going back to education because obviously I'm quite passionate about education, both from my day job at the medical school and also from my involvement in the HA. And I think 
that is one of the things that we are changing in the way that we're educating uh, medical students and doctors, which is not so much in teaching them facts and making sure they know all the facts, although some basic facts are, are there to stay, but, but it's teaching them where to look, how to look, how to think, how to research. Um, when I went to medical school, we had to learn everything by heart and we needed to know all those uh, basic pathophysiology all the way through treatment in, in a very systematic way. But, but now it's much more important that our students know what a reliable source of information is, where they get their sources and how they can advance their knowledge. And, and so it is true that probably half, if not more, of what we've learned is no longer applicable or even more true that as knowledge comes in, it is not possible to know everything. And we need to learn how to use all the tools there are to learn things. Now, what, over the, I've already mentioned CML and the transformation in CML, but I think in general terms, what has really happened in hematology is that we have been able to characterize the pathophysiology of the diseases to such an extent that we now have very targeted therapy for most of these diseases. Suffice it to say that about 50% of hematological malignancies can be treated without chemotherapy or with a minimal amount of chemotherapy. And so we have targeted therapies for diseases such as myeloma, in which we treat with novel agents that are not cytotoxic. Chronic myeloid leukemia is something I have mentioned. Um, and also for lymphomas, we are gearing towards immunotherapy more and more and avoiding cytotoxic therapies. And I think that's a huge advance. It's also very, very striking to see how immunology has really reshaped the way we look at diseases and reshaped the way that we treat diseases. And cellular therapy is a huge advance that was unimaginable. And I think what is even more surprising and it caught us all by surprise, very much like um, TKIs for CML have caught us by surprise in how, uh, in their efficacy, has been how cellular therapy works well and treats and is able to cure patients with, uh, with lymphomas. And, and, and I think that will be extended to other diseases. Um, but even though this is not my area of interest, I cannot but mention multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma was an awful disease 20 years ago, there, was, there were horrible end-organ complications with bone disease, renal disease, um, bone marrow infiltration, etc. Treatments that were very aggressive with lots of side effects. And we now treat multiple myeloma with antibodies and uh, immunomodulators, immune therapy without chemotherapy, and survival of patients with myeloma has gone from three to five years to more than 10, 15 years. And, and that all in the space of less than a lifetime is very, very remarkable. Yeah, it is, it is amazing. Are there any of the um, major treatment advances that are uh, on the horizon that you haven't mentioned? You've already mentioned a lot. Well, I, I focus very much on, on malignancies, but I, I think we can't forget that more than half of hematology is non-malignant. 
and there are some very non, some very severe non-malignant diseases such as the hemoglobinopathies. And again, there there's there's great promise. I mean, we have a lot of new agents for diseases such as sickle cell disease and thalassemia from lispatrostep to anti-sickling agents. And, and these, even though they're still not uh, totally available, uh, hold great promise from the, for the future. Um, and again, with diseases such as hemophilia, which many hematologists treat around the world, I think there are many new targeted agents that help these patients avoid complications, avoid bleeding, and even curative therapies with, uh, with, so with gene-modified therapy. So uh, certainly these areas, again, I, I very much, when I step back and think about what is happening, it does feel very much like Brave New World, in which we take out cells, modify them, put them back in, and are able to effectively treat patients in that manner. Well, you've mentioned hemoglobinopathies, and that takes me to a two-part question. Can you first comment about the recent British approval, I believe it's a world first, of a therapy that uses uh, CRISPR, a Cas9 gene editing tool, uh, as a treatment for sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. Uh, it's called Cascavi, which I've probably mispronounced. But it's expensive, maybe as much as two million per patient. Yet one can minimize other healthcare costs, but this and other rare disease treatments they're very expensive because it takes a lot of money to bring a therapy like that to market. So the second part of my question, how do we reconcile the benefits of such treatment with the costs? And as technology advances, where are we as a society going to find the money to treat the patients who can benefit? Yes, Jonathan, I think that's the million dollar question, isn't it? There, there's no doubt that therapies, gene editing strategies and gene editing therapies have been a dream for a long time. You know, this is a way that we can effectively treat inherited diseases such as sickle cell, but also thalassemia um, and hemophilia and other inherited, severe inherited diseases without resource to very aggressive therapies such as bone marrow transplantation, which have huge side effects. And so they are effective and safer for patients. Now, like all therapies, the, the costs just escalates. And, and that is a huge issue. I mean, we've been facing this issue with all these novel therapies that I've mentioned before, be it for CML, myeloma, lymphoma, that, that the costs just escalate. And suffice it to say that hematology is the most expensive specialty uh, in the world currently because of all the new therapies that we have. And, and that is the price we are now paying for the efficacy that we were able to provide. Now, one huge action that we take as EHA, and I mentioned before, is the action of advocacy to ensure that there is fair, equitable uh, access to novel treatments throughout. Now, it, it's very difficult to envisage how all these bills will be paid. But I also think we need to put into perspective that these are relatively rare diseases. And as they are rare diseases, even though hemoglobinopathies are the commonest inherited diseases in the world, they're still quite rare. And the patients that have severe enough complications to warrant these, uh, to warrant intervention are, are also fewer. Um, you know, I, I think we need to come up with a common strategy 
of how these will be financed and, and whether we need uh, some sort of help either from central finance or from patient associations. I think we're, and this may be a little bit contentious, but we are very much stuck at a mentality in Europe that the state and national health system should be able to provide for everything. And that is just not possible. Uh, and we, we need to start looking at other alternatives of funding that will help these patients access treatment without having to totally dilapidate you know, the, the annual state budget. Yeah, very much so. Uh, hopefully, of course, as the technology advances, you hope the prices will come down. So finally, Antonio, we, we always like to end on the same question. If you came across a genie who could grant you three wishes for the future of healthcare, maybe in just your area of expertise, what would those wishes be? <laughs> well, uh, that, that's a very difficult question because where, where do you start and where do you finish? Um, I mean, one big wish that I would have would be to have better access and more promotion of research throughout Europe. I think that we, we've, we have clinical and laboratory research very much focused on a few centers which are excellent and great centers of excellence. So this is in no way demeaning the great work that they do. But, but I think we're missing out on expertise, on creativity from other regions and other areas. And so to be able to invest more in research, uh, and it's not just money, it's actually investing knowledge, manpower, technology uh, in, in other regions and other research to be able to bring it to, to live and bring it into the translational world would be one great dream. Uh, the other great dream, obviously, is to, to be able to provide better treatments for patients. And, and this is not just treatments that are not available, but to increase availability of treatments. And we, we talked a lot about pricing, but very often the question is not just pricing. Very often the question is the infrastructure that each individual country has. And so we may even, for example, in Portugal, have cellular therapy available and patients can access it. But the problem is that we do not have enough infrastructure to give it to everybody that needs cellular therapy. And so there are long waiting lists, long, long, long waiting times, which sometimes means patients do not receive the treatment in a timely fashion. And, and unfortunately, the disease progresses before that. And so I think to be able to create ideal conditions for, for patients to be treated and to have access to treatment is a huge challenge, uh, possibly even more of a challenge than just the simple uh, funding to, 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 to buy the, the drugs and the, and the treatment options. Um, and thirdly, I think one of my greatest dreams when someone who's lived, I lived for 18 years in the UK and then came back to Portugal, uh, I think we would all gain a lot more if we had better collaborative platforms and better communication platforms and better ways to collaborate with each other. Uh, and so, you know, if my genie could grant me that wish would be to actually help everybody talk to each other and collaborate and exchange ideas in a way that we could 
give huge advancement to science, hematology, and medicine. Yeah, those would be noble and wonderful wishes, wouldn't they? Well, I'd, I'd also love to have my own 50-foot sailing boat, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd have to think which one I'd leave behind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and in, in a troubled world, for those of you who have not tried it, there is nothing that soothes the soul than a, a well-trimmed sailboat uh, sailing upwind. Um, uh, yeah, uh, downwind really doesn't matter. It's about the journey, not the destination. So Absolutely. talking of which, this, um, uh, this journey has sadly come to an end. I'd really like to thank you, Professor Antonia Almeida, for being with us today for sharing your knowledge and frankly, for everything you do, not just for the patients in your hospital, but for the advancement of the field of hematology and for people like my friend. So it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been great to be here. So folks, please subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Check out the archives because there's a bunch of really great uh, uh, conversations on there. Like us on social media, you know, you know the drill. And please join us next week for another really great episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>